In the year 1068, England was not a placid state, happily accepting the subjugation by their new king. It was a rebellious fever dream, where from almost every corner of the land, insurgency and revolt stirred. But don't think of some nice Hollywood depiction of plucky Saxons fighting nasty Normans in the woods with their bows and arrows. This was a far more savage affair, of people being driven by the underlying conditions to commit acts of atrocity. It was a bloody harvest, an absolute slaughter. Never before had England experienced death on such a grand scale. None of the Vikings, for all of their viciousness, had ever been so disruptive. The ravages of the Yom's Vikings had destroyed the south, but had left the north mostly untouched. And even the great heathen army, which over a decade had destroyed the old heptarchy of England, had taken ten years to do this, and it's arguable but that even they didn't kill as many as died in the couple of years after the Norman conquest. The whole land seemed to be catching fire. And London? What position did London take in this ferocious era of rebellion? The city, after all, had been the symbol of resistance towards William of Normandy. What role would it play as the many rebellions began at the start of the 1070s? Let's find out. Hi, my name is Saul, and this is Chapter 50 of The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the narrative tale of the city as it passed through the ages of time. I can't believe we've made it to this bumper issue. Welcome, then. To catching fire. We left London around the year 1068 and 1069 trying to come to terms with this new king and his new administration. And yet events elsewhere were about to dictate the course of English history. And once again, I'm presented with the eternal dilemma of this podcast. I wish to talk about London. But I cannot ignore the events taking place everywhere else. And these events are an amazing story. At times gripping and exciting, at times horrific and terrible and at times filled with bathos and a exceptionally dark humour. It's a wild ride, think the Hunger Games on steroids. It's like a series of waves smashing into a shore, each one getting worse and worse. And, no matter how much detail I go into, what follows is merely a summary. We're going to start with what I've already mentioned last episode, so I won't go over these events again, really, but this includes the original instigations and rebellions that William faced. For example, the invasion by Count Eustace of Boulogne, the trouble up in Northumbria, and the fighting over in Devon and Cornwall. And I did this last chapter. There is a moment in the fighting over in Devon that stands out to me as something I should really like to be true. There had apparently been a standoff as the town of Exeter rebelled against William. William turned up with an army in person. He tried to intimidate the defenders, the rebels, by bringing out a hostage he'd taken from Exeter previously and blinding that poor man in front of the city's defenders. The response from the rebels of Exeter to this? Apparently one of the Exeter garrison very publicly dropped his trousers, showed the king his ass, and farted loudly at him. 
Well, that started the siege properly, really, and apparently for the next 18 days, William sent his forces against the city's stout walls in all fury and upset that someone had decided to fart in the king's general direction. The instigators of all of this happened to be members of the Godwin family who were in town inciting the residents. But after 18 days, they cut their losses and proceeded to flee by boat and the town sheepishly surrendered to the Normans. William, despite the supposed fart insult, granted them mercy and didn't allow his men loot and burn the place. Anyway, as I went on about last chapter, by mid-1068, William had sent for his heavily pregnant wife, Matilda, to sail over to receive her formal coronation as Queen of England. London got to see their queen, and there was a vast ceremony. A whole bunch of clerics and nobles and the great and good of the new regime turned up on the Feast of Whitson. She was crowned in the Westminster down on Thorny Island. The good news is that it appears that the abbey and the palace complex had been restored after the forced redecoration of the place back in Christmas 1066 by William's men, which was why William could stay in Westminster now, and not the five-star abbey down the river in soggy barking. Matilda's coronation was a nice and above all peaceful ceremony. No riots, no rampaging Normans, no burning Thorny Island and stealing everything not nailed down. See, they can learn. But out in the rest of the country, an insurgency was properly beginning. And it wasn't because anyone was running around going, we are free Englishmen and these are oppressive Normans. That was not the motivation of the rebellion. Sure, it became one of the justifications of the rebellion especially in later dates, but the causes of the uprising were far more pragmatic and, dare I say it, economic. William and his regime were redistributing land, you see. It was one thing to redistribute land off the guys who had died at the Battle of Hastings, and that one thing had caused an enormous amount of resentment as it was, but now the regime was expanding this, Everyone who had fought at Hastings, including the survivors, was having land yoint from them, and it went beyond even them. The e-version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle actually says about William the Conqueror, quote, when he came back, he gave away every man's land, unquote. It all seemed to come to a head when the last two remaining major Saxon lords of England, Edwin, Earl of Mercia, and Morcar, Earl of Northumbria, rose in rebellion against the regime. They were only teenagers, it must be said, and if you ever wonder why the Normans kicked the arse of the English nobility, it's because the mainstay of the English nobility and the main powers of the English nobility were not old enough in today's world to own a credit card. Anyway, Edwin and Morcar finally rebelled against William, and a large number of locals jumped on board their rebellion, including Edgar Etheling, a.k.a. King Edgar II of England. Finally, the young kid was willing to stand up to William and claim what was rightfully his. Edward the Confessor had nominated him to be king after all, and London and the surviving Witangamot had chosen him to be king after the Godwinsons were wiped out at Hastings. Now, it must be said, William had tried to appease Edgar when he took over the throne. Nominally, via convoluted means, William claimed to be part of the family of Edward the Confessor, as denoted by Edward, basically saying he was back around 1052 or so. So, William granted Edgar loads of lands and territories after the conquest as fitting a royal and loyal member of the ruling dynasty. But it wasn't enough, apparently, and he throws in his lot with Edwin and Morcar. Either way, this was a big rebellion. 
on paper. But William was no King Ethelred, sending out incompetent minions to try to do his bidding. He was a get-on-my-horse-and-kick-someone's-ass type of leader. He leads a force north and starts building castles as he goes along, the castles being the force multipliers that the English really couldn't really cope with. He'd just completed his new castle in the town of Warwick, and yes, that's Warwick Castle being built right now, when Edwin and Morcar just kinda surrender. William takes this good news and continues north. When William built a castle in Nottingham, the citizens of York panicked at the prospect of facing down this king and surrendered and sent him the keys of the city. So William went to York and guess what? He built a castle there, the one now known as Clifford Tower. At this, most of the rebels sunk back to William and surrendered, except for a hardcore group, including not quite king Edgar, who fled across the border into Scotland, and this is important. Scotland, under the control of King Malcolm, was a big supporter of Edgar. By this stage, the Scottish king had married the older sister of Edgar, a woman called Margaret, so technically the kid was his brother-in-law, so yeah, Scotland was supporting the rebels. And then, round about now, the Godwinson family returned. They'd sailed over from Dublin, where they'd been hiding, and they had hired a whole new fleet of Vikings. And all of that campaign, which I mentioned briefly last chapter, took place. All of this action had taken place just two years after the invasion, and the fighting in 1068 had been vicious and fast-paced. Quote, Ill fortune held victors and vanquished alike in its snare, bringing down on them war, famine and pestilence. Unquote. William's forces were apparently beginning to get utterly pissed off with life in England. This place was miserable and endlessly violent. Large numbers began to seek to go home, and it became such a crisis that another source says at the time, quote, The king, with so much fighting on his hands, was most anxious to keep all his knights about him, and made them a friendly offer of lands and revenues and great authority, promising them more when he had completely rid the kingdom of all his enemies, unquote. So, William was having to offer more land and rewards to keep the Normans in country, which in turn led to increased resentment from the native English population as these were their lands they were taking off them, which in turn drove the chances of revolt, which in turn required William to keep more Normans in the country, and around and around we go. And by 1069, surprise, surprise, the cycle of violence started again, William decided to tighten his grain on the north by appointing a new overlord of the region, a man called Earl Robert Cumin, who went there with between five to nine hundred armed men. He turned up and basically started burning and pillaging any lands he thought held potential rebels, which, in his eyes, were all the lands north of the River Tyne, it seems. The population tried to flee from this sudden onslaught, but, quote, Suddenly there came such a heavy fall of snow and such a harsh winter that all possibility of flight was decided, unquote. Trapped between a rampaging army and a deadly winter, the locals were forced to stand and fight. As Earl Robert Cumin and his men settled into the town of Durham, quote, The Northumbrians who had banded together burst in through all the gates and rushed through the whole town, killing all the Earl's companions, unquote. Earl Robert managed to hold off the attackers for a while in a fortified building, 
but the attackers simply set fire to it. Quote, some of those inside burned to death, others rushed out through the doors and were cut down, unquote. The massacre of Cumin and his large force triggered a new uprising. The new castle just built in York was stormed and its commander killed, and there was another large slaughter of Normans. The small garrison in the old castle in York were besieged, and the rebels from the year before who'd been hiding in Scotland travelled south, including Edgar II. The rebellion in 1069 seemed worse than the rebellion in 1068. William, however, seemed to move with a celerity that staggered everyone. Quote, Swift was the king's coming, unquote, says one source, while another says King William took the rebels, quote, by surprise with an overwhelming army, unquote. This time, York was ravaged and looted by the Frenchmen, including the great church of Yorkminster. The king stuck around for about a week, but he knew before he returned south that the region was going to continue fighting. His authority didn't really extend much beyond Yorkshire. It was up north where all the crisis seemed to be. So what was London doing in the midst of all of this? Well, as I said last chapter, London was being seemingly very loyal. We know that in the revolt in Devon, Bishop Geoffrey of Colchester had led a force of armed men from Winchester and Salisbury, and above all, London. The feud of London, not really a feud anymore, now just men-at-arms, marched under Norman direction to put down a rebellion of their fellow Englishmen. Now, one could argue this was out of character for London, what with it having been the stalled bastion of resistance in the past, but actually, this apparent apathy and collaboration does make a lot of sense. One, London liked to fight for someone, be it for Ethelred against Forkbeard, or Ironside against Canute, or even Edward the Confessor against Godwin. And Edgar wasn't in their league, really. Secondly, London had learned when fighting the Danes that if you lose, you could pay your way out of trouble. But the city had quickly got the measure of this William of Normandy, and as York was discovering, William was willing to allow a place get wrecked if they rebelled against him. Hell, London had seen the Normans destroy Southwark and Lambeth, and they'd seen what happens when William wasn't able to keep a check on his men down in Westminster. They knew better than to make the mistake York was currently making. Finally, as I described in chapter 38, Londoners were pragmatists, ultimately. The same way they had minted coins for both Arthur Canute and Harold Canuteson when the rest of the country was picking sides, they clearly seemed about now to be willing to put their heads down and get on with stuff while the rest of the nation decided to try their hand at rebellion. Of course, London wasn't cut off from the news from elsewhere, and during 1069, when the entire North seemed to be dedicated to killing the Normans and the regime did look shaken, there is a uniquely London moment of rebellion. Rebellion involving someone making a lot of money on the side. So, we know there was an incident involving London's moneyers. Oh yes, coin-making. London had remained the centre of the English monetary system under William. Indeed, given that coin-making in Normandy was crude and resulted in cheap pennies, English currency was much purer and more stable. William had left the English monetary system alone. It was literally a cash cow for him. 
Now, at this point, I could bore everyone except those folks who really like talking about medieval monetary policy, about the exact tax rates upon the moneyers of London and how much revenue this made for the king, but there is only so much nerd anyone can cope with, and I don't want to cause any trouble by sending people to sleep, especially if they're listening to this while commuting. So, I'm going to summarise several books worth of painfully fascinating details by merely saying that the advanced English monetary system remained in place during all this period and beyond. It provided William and his state with much-needed revenue, and the complicated system of creating coin dyes to make the coins of the land being fabricated and run out of London was maintained. Added to this, no matter how many Normans replaced Saxon landowners across the nation during this era, when it came to the craft of coin making, the English specialist remained in position for generations. This was way too profitable an exercise for William or his heirs to ever piss about with. And so the coin makers of London continued, men with names like Godric, Ilfwine, Wulfric, in Eastmere, either working in the London Mint or in the newly rebuilt Southwark Mint, continued to produce the coins for England. Yet we know from archaeological evidence that even this system was not immune to the chaos taking place around England at this time. So from 1069, we have discovered that four of London's moneyers were guilty of malpractice, including using altered coin dyes and lightweight coins, where the silver content was lesser and the missing silver probably ended up in their pocket. Now, some historians I've read have suggested they were maybe not acting alone and could have been working with moneyers up in Lincoln in some kind of massive conspiracy. And at least one historian I've read suggested that this was indicative of an increasingly demoralized workforce acting like this because, well, the authorities seem to be somewhat distracted. Was the ship of William's regime sinking? It seemed to be. After what I described in the previous rebellion, William returned to the south and sent his Queen Matilda back to Normandy, quote, away from English tumults, unquote. And then, on Midsummer 1069, the Godwinson clan, the sons of the late Harold Godwinson via his lover, Edith Swanneck, invaded England, leading a force of about 70 Irish and Irish Sea Vikings, landing on the north coast of Devon near the town of Barnstable. The Invasion of 1069, not to be confused with the Invasion of 1068 by the same Godwinsons, or Eustace's Invasion of 1067, or William's and Hardrada's Invasion of 1066, it was beaten off by local forces over in the West, but not without significant loss of life. But it was noted that in the aftermath, a representative of the Godwins now sailed to Flanders and then onwards to Denmark. And here, they got King Sven of Denmark to try his hand at invading England. William had seemingly started a fashion now. You can't blame Denmark for trying it. I mean, the entire north of England had basically risen up against William's regime. He seemed to be barely holding on. And by all accounts, if Denmark invaded, it looked like that the entire Anglo-Scandinavian population of the old Dane law could well have been up to throw their weight behind a new Danish king. After all, England had had four Danish kings before, fifth time's a charm. 
This Danish invasion of 1069 was no small affair. It was as big as William the Conqueror's one in 1066, it seems. King Svein, quote, strained all the resources of his nation as well as amassing numerous troops from neighbouring regions which were friendly towards him. Poland, Frisia and Saxony all helped, unquote. This was a serious invasion. Svein also copied William and the late Harold Godwinson by saying that actually King Edward the Confessor had promised him the throne. Honestly. I mean, at this point, it sounds like Edward the Confessor was offering to throne to literally anyone with a pulse, but that's between me and you. As it was in the late summer of 1069, King Sven of Denmark unleashed a Viking fleet of maybe as many as 300 ships under the command of his brother Ashbjorn, and this force followed the old Viking routes along the east coast of England, raiding and despoiling as they went. Ah, uh, Dover, Sandwich, Ipswich and Norwich all got to revisit happy times as the Vikings hit them and then sailed on. Oh, how they laughed on the way to the Burns unit. Finally, the Danish force landed around the river Humber, where they were met by forces loyal to the rebels, including Edgar, the Dejur King of England, now siding with anyone, it seems. The new rebel alliance headed inland, quote, with all the Northumbrians and all the people riding and marching with an immense host, rejoicing exceedingly, unquote. The days of the regime of William I of England seemed numbered. The north fell quickly with the garrison at York wiped out, the city suffering tremendous fire damage and thousands were apparently killed. William, for his part, raised another army and marched north. Given the losses and the previous moments of English forces supplementing his own, I wonder if some of this army didn't include men from London again, raised to show their loyalty to the king. If so, they walked into a hellscape. The rebels had fled into Lincolnshire and made it clear they had no intention of fighting William in a set battle. The Norman king had a ferocious, unbeaten reputation at his part, so... It's clear these Vikings and allies decided they will hold off until more forces arrived from Denmark. Meanwhile, another rebellion erupted in the West Country, an Exeter was attacked by a host of rebellious Cornish and Devon residents, and an attack was launched by the Welsh and the men of Chester against the castle of Shrewsbury. Things had gone from being moderately awful to a flaming bucket of excrement. But William forced to split his diminishing forces, had his men fighting everywhere and recorded victories in a series of bloody battles from Exeter up to near Stafford. One chronicle of these times, a man called Alderick says, quote, in all these battles, much blood had flowed on both sides and combatant and non-combatants alike were reduced to great wretchedness by the disturbance. Massacres of wretched people increased, souls were imperiled by the sins of envy and anger, and swept away to hell in their thousands." Unquote. William, after having purged the southwest again and the Midlands again, finally tried to make his way to combat the Danes and northern rebels. After a miserable campaign and terrible weather, when his exhausted forces finally reached York, he then found the rebels were gone. This 
was utter carnage. And William was about to make it much, much worse. Understand what the north of England had faced at this point. Rebellions had torn through it, killing men required to keep the fields growing the following spring. The Danes had ploughed through here, also killing men needed to keep the fields going the following spring. Disease and starvation had killed more men required to maintain these fields. The Scots had invaded at one point, also killing men needed to, yes you guessed it, maintain the fields. So here in winter, anyone and everyone knew that the next year was going to be a hungry year come what may. There was going to be not enough men to maintain the fields to feed everyone. All they had until then were their winter stores of food. Now, some historians try to downplay what William did next, pointing out that the sheer damage done could not have been done by such small numbers that he brought in such a short time as he was in the north, and they are correct. It took a village to create the conditions of a man-made famine. But it took William to pull the trigger on all of this and actually create one. William found himself in the winter of 1069 and 1070, living basically in the ruined city of York and facing a difficult tactical situation. He knew the second he left, the region would revert to the rebels. So he ordered two things done at once. First, he made the Danish army over in Lincolnshire an offer of a large amount of cash to stop attacking his forces. The Danes and their allies took the money leaving their fellow English rebels out to dry. Oh, they didn't go home. They stayed like a large host of parasites. After all, next year, their king was due with another supplementary army. But a large Dane guild to get them to stop risking their lives for a few months, oh, they accepted William's coins as gladly as their forebears had accepted the coins of Ethelred or even Alfred. But the main thing William did... Well, to quote one source, quote, In his anger, he commanded that all crops and herbs, chattels and food of every kind, should be brought together and burned to ashes with consuming fire, so that the whole region north of the Humber might be stripped of all means of substance, unquote. William ordered the winter stores be destroyed all the winter stores. No army, Danish, Scottish or English, would be able to live off this land. If they didn't bring food with them, they would starve. William was ordering a scorched earth policy, and the result, quote, as a consequence, so serious a scarcity was felt in England, and so terrible a famine fell upon humble and defenceless people, that more than 100,000 Christian folk of both sexes, young and old alike, perished of hunger." Unquote. There is an ongoing debate within the study of this period about how bad this famine was, the so-called harrying of the North. There are those who say Norman sources downplayed what followed, or English sources exaggerated what happened. And we do not have time to get into that whole debate. 
So I'll just make you aware that the exact details of the Harring of the North are the source of much historical discussion. This being said, I, for one, do accept that some of the arguments suggesting that perhaps it was exaggerated are true, but that it was overall a pretty horrendous event. It was a famine like no other in England previous to this. Contemporary accounts in England describe people being reduced to eating dogs, cats, horses, and at times humans. Others apparently sold themselves into perpetual slavery to avoid starvation. We can't say at Evesham Abbey in Worcester, they record huge number of refugees coming south in search of food, and like any in such conditions, they ate any food given to them so ravenously that their bodies went into shock. Five or six died each day from this. London would have been aware of this terrible calamity taking place to the north of them. There is no way they could ignore it. But William was relentless. Apparently he celebrated the third anniversary of his coronation in York, in full regalia, in the smoking ruins of Yorkminster, the city of York a burnt-out husk around him, before sending forces men through appalling weather to continue to find the rebels wherever they were, and when they couldn't, just destroy any and all winter stores and places that could grow food next year. The harrying continued into 1070. The result was as brutal as the tactics. The few remaining rebels surrendered, except the likes of the wannabe King Edgar, who managed to make it through the desolation, back to Scotland. Yet this crisis was not over yet. 1070 was to see the Danish king finally arrive with a brand new army, and many in the Fens in East Anglia flocked to his cause. But William had a way of dealing with him also. He sent word to King Sven and offered him, well, he offered him a Danegeld worthy of the illustrious King Forkbeard of Denmark himself. In a moment that I could have brief fragments of the reign of Ethelred Unred, in moment that bore shades of the arrival of the Viking leader Haston when he met Alfred the Great. William invited the Danish king to London. How things change and how they stay the same. Here we are in 1070 and sailing up the River Thames, came Danish dragon ships with an invading Danish king upon them. Only this time there was no battle, and only diplomacy. For two days the Danish king was a guest of King William and the residents of London, the city no doubt leading the old protocols that had been seen once upon a time, the things you do to raise the coins to create a massive Dane guild to pay off a Danish vikinger. And that done... The city got to watch him sail on the tide, down the Thames, and back to Denmark. And with that, the end of an era. With this act, the rebellion against William was basically done. Thousands had been killed, much of the land devastated. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle said 1070 had a famine upon the whole land, caused in no small part by the actions of the king. But London, London survived. It witnessed, as the years went by, papal legates arriving in England and a score of English bishops being stripped of their positions, replaced by Normans more aligned to the regime. It witnessed as William seized vast 
fortunes from the monasteries of England to generate even more cash, which he used to pay off the expensive mercenary troops it had to turn to. It witnessed large numbers of men from Flanders and Normandy and Brittany who had stuck with William actually return home in disgust and horror at what they had seen. The rebellion had been horrific, and William had driven his men to extraordinary feats of endurance, but clearly not without cost. The death toll had been so high that the church placed penance upon the invading forces. There was killing men in war, but then there was what William had inflicted upon England. The church may have sanctioned William's invasion, but this... Specific spiritual penalties were instituted for killing of so many people, and William's men faced decades of serving penance for their sins and misdeeds, which was mitigated in no small part by the funding and building of churches. And it was because of that that the great wave of Norman church building, which followed the rebellious era of the post-conquest time, was really instigated not so much by faith, but by a bunch of nobles trying to get right with God. And all of this, everything I've just said so far, is merely, and I promise you, a brief and brutal summary of those deadly and horrific days. There is vast amounts here I've left out, including William in 1072 engaging in his most ambitious military campaign. He actually invaded Scotland, got King Malcolm to swear allegiance to him, took the Scottish king's son Duncan as hostage, and forced Edgar Etherling to flee to Flanders. The sheer logistics of doing this alone made this a staggering campaign and victory. But Scotland and other things are a long way from where we want to focus upon. What then of London during the aftermath of this rebellion? As I said, London has stayed out of it. Maybe that was because there were two large wooden stockades filled with warriors on either side of the town that kept them pacified. Port Reeve de Mandeville never oversaw London with just a winning smile. But for whatever reason, London remained quiet. It took no part in the rebellions. It was a big port, trading a vast multitude of goods. And as the king came and went, battling in the north, and also travelling across and fighting in Normandy, and he did have to fight in Normandy, London kept its head down and worked and traded. Trade. That bastion of London carried on during this era. And we have a tiny shard of evidence to suggest how strong it was just after the rebellions. You see, there is a coin. It's not often one drawing's conclusions from a single coin found amidst the multitude of coins in England at this time, but this coin stands out. For one thing, it was gold, not silver like the English ones, and for another, it was foreign. The coin was called a mancus, and it was minted in Barcelona on behalf of Count Raymond Berenger I of that state, sometime between 1069 and 1075. The coin was quite different. Not only was it a gold coin, but it was based on Arabic dinars minted across in Africa. On one side, it bore Arabic script, while on the other, Latin writing. Such bilingual coins were mostly used in Barcelona by Christian mercenaries 
who were employed by the Muslim city-states of El Andalus, the Tifas, to wage war upon one another. This coin was not found in London. In fact, it was found 25 kilometers west-northwest of London, on the estate of Denham. But back then, Denham was the property of the Abbey of St. Peter's on Thorny Island. This coin was on property owned by Westminster and was located on the land route taken from London to Oxford. It probably came from Barcelona and it found itself in England, mostly via the docks of Billingate. No, a single coin does not grant us proof to say there were working links for London's docks to southern Spain. Far, far from it. But it does show the possibility of these links, perhaps. I find myself at this point reflecting that London is again, during the years of the 1070s, becoming a place of shadow. As England erupted into war and rebellion, the city remained peaceful and quiet. Seemingly. One cannot help but wonder how much of this could be attributed to Geoffrey de Mandeville, prudently keeping an eye on the city with around 10,000 inhabitants and making sure it remained out of the maelstrom of events. Or maybe there was a more ominous reason, one we need to examine in a future chapter. Regardless, London weathered these political storms and famines and weathered the especially cold winters of 1073 and 74 and 1076 and 77. And yet, for all of that, London was to experience flames of a more mundane source. The summer of 1077 had been a hot one. I've read reports from those who study tree records that the dry, drought-like conditions had caused wildfires across England as temperatures rose and then, as now, sparks could become flames, could become infernos. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, This year also was the dry summer, and wildfire came upon many shires, unquote. The fetid, sweltering streets of London had baked in this long, hot summer. Narrow streets bracketed by houses made of wood and thatch, sweated and boiled as the months progressed. Based on ordinances passed later, we think what happened wasn't anything special. It was just a house fire. Houses on the whole were still the basic design we'd seen in London ever since it moved behind the walls. One main living room for families to live in, talk, cook, eat, do everything together. And it was here that the family kept their fire. The hearth was probably found in the centre of the room, or more centrally placed at least, to allow heat be diffused evenly during the winter months. But even in the summer months, the hearth of London would be in use. After all, this is where you cooked your food. We will never know what started this fire, but we think it was an ember from a hearth. Anyone who's ever lived with a real fire as their main form of heating knows that the hardest part of a fire is starting it. The ritual of starting the fire in the morning is as old as humanity itself. Far easier then to allow the fire burn quietly during the night. Not much. You don't want it roaring, especially in the fetid hot summer months when it hasn't rained for weeks. But enough that come morning, all you needed to do is add a bit of kindling and it would return to life. What we think happened was that on the evening of August the 14th, in someone's house, an ember spat from the hearth and caught 
maybe some straw. Quickly, the flame grew. Fire can move with remarkable speed. We imagine it racing up a wall to ignite the straw roof. And within seconds, this house was ablaze. Within minutes, the house next door. And suddenly, to the roars of panic and the screams of neighbours, London awoke to find the blaze had caught. The Great Fire of London of 1077 was devastating, apparently. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records, quote, This year was London burned, one night before the Assumption of St. Mary, so terribly as it was never was before, since it was built, unquote. Now, we do not know the extent of the damage beyond that, but it's worth considering one salient fact we cannot argue with. Immediately afterwards, the Normans began reconstructing their two wooden stockades in stone, for me, this suggests the possibility they were both destroyed or damaged in the fire which followed, which would suggest a fire that spread from the River Fleet to Tower Hill. That's a massive inferno taking up everywhere if it happened. And even if it didn't burn that extensively, and actually all things considered, I believe it hit mostly on the western end of the city. The destruction of the stockade on the west side of London and its rebuilding into two stone towers does at least suggest that the damage here was worse and that London experienced a horrific inferno with the resulting loss of life, livelihoods and homes. Our only clue as to its severity and its scale and its cause comes from the aftermath. King William issued a new decree in the aftermath. Henceforth in London, all lights and flames and fires were to be covered and extinguished at night, with the only possible exception being candles lit below the sacred icons of saints, but that's a big maybe. One historian I stumbled upon summed up the situation in the aftermath like this, quote, Between the evening twilight and the greyness before dawn, one can hardly make out the walls of the houses, for there is no lighting in the medieval city. Why would the streets need to be lit anyway? In the evening, the entrances to the dangerous neighbourhoods are barred, Chains are stretched across the river to prevent a surprise attack from barbarian raiders coming upstream, and the city gates are locked tight. The city is like one big household, with everything well secured." Unquote. William's new fire regulation rule was called the couvert feu, literally the cover fire ordinance. In time, the English referred to this as curfew, which in time became the origin of the word curfew. Here, in the aftermath of the Great Fire of 1077, is the first curfew. As London rebuilt, it would now be up to de Mandeville to enforce this rule, even if it was unpopular. And at this, we're going to leave London here, in the smoke-filled aftermath of the Fire of 1077. England had burned in the flames of rebellion, leading to bloodshed and death on a scale unmatched, yet London had avoided these horrors and thrived, yet it had clearly not escaped all the flames. As a residence, both native and foreign occupier began rebuilding and reconstructing the city. The one, and perhaps only, comfort they could gain from this was the fact that the regime had now weathered this storm. Whatever was to come, couldn't be as bad as what they just faced, right? Right? Thank you for listening. Do so hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed writing it. Covered a lot, and I could have gone into more detail, but, 
you know, we'll just keep trucking along. And just so you know, we're now actually coming up to the end of book two of the story of London, and book three is due soon, as London moves on to a new section of its history, but I'll bring you up to speed when we get closer to that. I'd like to thank everybody for their support, and it comes in many forms. Firstly, to all those who have given me five-star ratings and reviews, and have given me feedback via the Apple website or on Imgur. Your comments are really appreciated. And I want to thank uh, Ellie Sego from Canada for leaving a lovely review on uh, Apple Podcasts recently. It's much appreciated. Secondly, if you want to support the podcast, you can always buy me a coffee uh, on the Buy Me A Coffee website. There should be a link on the webpage attached to this. And I'd like to thank Paul for a contribution there. I'm drinking coffee that you contributed to. Thank you very much. And above all, on Buy Me A Coffee, you could also become a member, which really does help support and keep the podcast possible. And I'd like to thank Louise for becoming a member. Your generosity is really appreciated, as well as the others. And I'll try and thank everybody as we go along. Okay, enough of me. That was a long chapter. Coming up, chapter 51, The Three Towers. Thanks for listening. Bye.